Hi, this is Mike Balaban. You're listening to Bammer, building community through storytelling and sharing the LGBT experience. My guest today is Stu Fenton, back for the second round of our interview. Stu, we're glad to have you back. Thank you for joining. Hi. During our first conversation, you explained how you got into escorting because your boyfriend at the time had introduced you to the business. And you also explained that you were selected by Colt Magazine, Colt Publishing, as one of its models in its glossy porn magazine business. One question I didn't ask is, did you ever do film porn, movie porn? And if not, why not? Because it seems like such a natural evolution from those other two activities. Well, I mean, at the time I was studying at university and, uh, you know, I was heading towards a few different job opportunities. And I'd heard that sometimes people had done porn and it had gotten in the way of them getting jobs later in their life. And I, I guess I just thought, I mean, I really loved Colt and I loved the work of Jim French. And, you know, I, I'd always loved his work. So I knew that that was a really good opportunity. And he's seen he was seen as an artist as well, you know, in his own right. It was an honor to actually do photos with him. But for me, I just thought porn <clears throat> might get me in a bit of trouble when I was trying to get work later on in my career. And I didn't feel like it was something I really needed to do. I mean, I, I did <clears throat> at the time, you know, Tom of Finland. I mean, Tom of Finland's always been really popular, but maybe it was just more popular with me at the time. And I do remember, you know, someone was telling me about a script they'd seen and they were going to make a Tom of Finland porn. And I had this fantasy that I was going to be in that. I mean, I guess if I, I guess I had a few hang-ups too about me having sex being caught forever on on the big screen. So I I guess there are a lot of reasons. But if I had not, if I'd been a bit less inhibited, I definitely would have loved to do the Tom of Finland one. Well, the other thing you mentioned when we were speaking offline is that <clears throat> this was what 2000ish. What what year would it have been? Yeah, it was 1999, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, I, I remember um, what we were talking about is that uh, the internet existed, but things like Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they, they weren't even around then. And so the stuff that I did for Colt really was only circulating between in gay bookshops and amongst gay men and, and gay culture. And so I guess it didn't really worry me if people saw the Colt stuff because it was only ever really seen by gay people. And of course, subsequently, the world has come together and you, you can find just about anything quickly, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And anyone can make porn and put it out there any night of the week. So last time we concluded the interview with you having entered rehabilitation after nearly killing yourself several times by overdosing on drugs, largely crystal meth and GHB. You indicated in that interview that all of 2003 was spent fighting that fight. But you also hinted that the struggle against addiction really effectively took longer. Can you kind of clarify what you meant by that? Well, I think really, I mean, in some ways, going to rehab for 11 months in 2003 was a bit easier because at least I was in, I mean, I was in a secluded rehab out sort of in the countryside up near Byron Bay in Australia and far away from Sydney in the city. So, you know, there was no, no chance for me to go off really and use any drugs. And so, all the time I spent in rehab was, I was incredibly relieved, you know, that I'd lived, survived. I was with people who had been through similar experiences to me. And, you know, I, I grew very close to a lot of the people I was in rehab. You know, we all had a laugh and we were able to kind of look back on our stories and everything and, and see where we'd come from. So that part in some ways was easy, but the hard part was 
you know, my all my friends were getting married and buying houses and having their first kids. And when I was sitting in rehab, trying to work out why I was a drug addict, and it just felt really like my life was going backwards. So it was tough. And I think too, in the years that followed coming out of rehab, I really had to try and find my identity again and work out who I was because, you know, one of the things for me is who am I if I'm not a gay man using GHB, crystal meth, having sex, being crazy, going to dance parties? That was kind of tough because I had to, first of all, manage to stay clean and work out, you know, how not to relapse, which was a bit of hard work. And then I did want to be part of the gay community and be able to go to dance parties. And I started slowly going back to the dance parties. And I think it's just because I... I wanted to be around other LGBT people. And so just trying to work out how to be that person on the gay scene, not using drugs, was took a, quite a few years to learn how to do, probably five years. After five years, I got very good at it. I was able to go out to sex clubs or parties or go into environments where people are using drugs and having sex and, and not be triggered at all. So I think I did a really good job of transitioning. And a lot of people saw me as quite unique because I would be in these environments where gay men would be using drugs, but I would be quite confident and happy to not be using drugs. So I guess that's what I meant by that. Well, implicit in your remarks is the fact that using drugs is a fairly common rite of passage, especially among gay men. How prevalent was the addiction issue in the gay male community in 2000 or 1999? I mean, I think it was an interesting time because when I first sort of came onto the gay scene, most gay men were using, and you know, I did a bit of, I spent quite a bit of time in New York in, in my early 20s. The big thing then really was ecstasy, MDMA, speed and ketamine. And this is all people took. And I mean, it was great going to gay clubs because all the men would be you know, dancing in groups and rubbing each other's heads and everyone would be kind of full of ecstasy. And it was such a really great vibe. And then around 98, 99, these are the first times I started hearing about crystal meth and GHB. And they kind of like were the new drugs at that at the party in a sense. And but the, everything kind of changed. And I think back then, you know, when I started to use those drugs, not a lot of people were using them. A lot of people saw them as, I don't know what this is, and probably had heard about people overdosing on G, and people were very concerned about them. I mean, for me, you know, I found Crystal and GHB were made me really horny and made me feel very sexy and took gave me heaps of confidence and, you know, did a whole lot of things to me that I really liked, and so... That's why I took them. It's hard to say, to be honest. I think in the US, crystal meth was already becoming a problem because they already started their first crystal meth anonymous meeting in Los Angeles in 1995. So, but I think it was just making its way to Australia then. People were starting to use more crystal meth GHB. But for the most part, ecstasy and bead and ketamine were the big party drugs. But obviously, as you know, the culture has changed quite significantly over the last 20 years. You know, funnily enough, I did crystal meth for a week with straight fraternity brothers, my sister and her boyfriend in 1976 over the U.S. Bicentennial weekend and then put it aside and didn't do it again until sometime in, like you're saying, the late 90s in New York when it became pretty popular. And I just have the kind of personality that it doesn't affect the way it did you. Do you find that common? That there's that kind of breakdown? Uh, yeah, I mean, as a drug and alcohol counsellor now, I always tell people that there are drug 
users, drug abusers and drug addicts. And, and there are loads of people out there who can use alcohol, marijuana, even crystal meth and GHB in moderation and use it successfully. I mean, this is one of the things that I think is interesting when I go out to nightclubs is there's a whole lot of people out there being very responsible about their drug use, which is great. And I would say that they're the drug users of our community. The drug abusers are the people that start to have problems with drugs. They don't like what they're doing to them. They might go through a really heavy phase of drug use, getting over a relationship. And because of what's, you know, they see everything going downhill, they sort of pull themselves out of it or they get into exercise in the gym more to stabilize themselves. And they're able to, without too much help, rectify themselves and get back on track. But in the third category, which is the drug, drug addicts, they, these are people who will, things terrible will start to happen. They'll say, I'm not going to use drugs this weekend. You know, I'm going to stay sober. And by Friday night, they're out doing drugs again and doing things, embarrassing themselves or harming themselves or whatever. And it becomes a repetitive cycle. And also, I've been a drug and alcohol counsellor for 15 years now. What I notice is most people play around with drugs in their 20s. And then these addictive patterns set in in their 30s as they do more drugs. So I would say that the gay community or the LGBT community is made up really with those three different kinds of people. And the people who are in the drug addict category are the ones who really need to go to rehab, who really need to go to a 12-step program, who probably can't integrate a harm reduction approach into their lives. The harm reduction approach is for the drug abusers. I think it's fairly standard that you would see these three groups of people out there in our LGBT community. You know, it's, it may seem like a little bit of a tangent, but have you ever considered that there may be some people who physiologically are not addictive? And I'll tell you why. We just had the U.S. Thanksgiving holiday here. And by the way, everyone, Stu and I are speaking between New York and Chiang Mai, Thailand on Skype, the, the wonders of technology. We just had our Thanksgiving holiday. My family was all together in my home. We're Jewish by by upbringing. And I was telling them that I have always heard that Jews are not very good alcohol drinkers. They're, they don't hold it well. They're not susceptible to becoming alcoholic. And my family hadn't heard of that. So I Googled it and I came up with an article where they've determined there's they've isolated a gene that's common in Jewish men uh, with like 20 or 25 percent of us where we can't process alcohol, that it makes us feel bad, that it doesn't give us the pleasure that it gives others. So I'm wondering if there are any things like that in terms of drug use. I guess I, I definitely think, of course, there are people who never get addicted to drugs. In fact, I've had several recent past boyfriends who are in their 30s and tell me interesting stories. You know, they tried a bit of alcohol when they were in their 20s, didn't like it and never really tried anything harder. And, you know, my most recent ex-boyfriend was very much the same. Never really, I mean, maybe tried a little bit in their 20s, but just never really got into it. I definitely, there definitely are people who never get addicted to drugs and don't get that Moorish kind of um, approach to drugs. Right. In our discussions, you've also clued me into the fact that Unfortunately, a fairly substantial majority of the population that become drug abusers can't get out of that cycle. What's your philosophy on that? How, what is that kind of breakdown and why do you think that is? It's really hard to say, to be honest, because, I mean, there's as many drug addicts in the heterosexual community as there is in the LGBT community. But I think for different reasons. I mean, there's so many different ideas on this. There's a lot of people who think it is a condition, you know, that establishes itself in the brain and causes people to repeatedly go back to drugs. 
I can only really speak for myself. I mean, I personally think I grew up with two homophobic parents. They weren't aware of it. I'm not really being nasty in saying this. It's just that that's the kind of people they were from their own backgrounds. And I think I absorbed a lot of their negativity about homosexuality and I internalized that. And I think I ended up having very low self-esteem. And I also had a very avoidant unavailable father so that contributed to low self-esteem and uh, my mum was very critical of me in many ways don't get me wrong I, I really love my parents but these are just things that I've learned you know through therapy and I think that my addiction started long before drugs you know I think my addictions be I, I was addicted to swimming I wanted to go to the Olympics I did it day and night I did it for three or four years addictively and then after that you know it probably was sugar or junk food and then television and masturbation and different things along the way and I think what happens is eventually for me you know I found ecstasy and then crystal meth and GHB and these were the drugs that kind of hit that reward center in my brain and and really turned me on to addiction and kept me coming back to it and another thing too why I talk about my low self-esteem is because I sometimes think one of my first addictions was to validation. Like I remember going into a gay club for the first time and all the men had their shirts off. And very soon I went to the gym and got addicted to the gym and built up my body and couldn't wait to get into parties and take my shirt off and have people looking at me and telling me how well built I was and that sort of thing. So validation from my low self-esteem was a big addiction of mine too. I mean, I think it is different for everyone. I can only speak for myself. And I think that for me, using drugs was a remedy for that. And also in rehab, I found out that I had difficult relationship with my parents. As I said, I had problems with my sexuality. I didn't feel like I was masculine enough. I didn't feel like I was good enough or adequate enough in some areas. I mean, the great thing about rehab is you really stop looking outside of yourself. And it's the first chance, at least for me, where I got to look at myself and work out where my uh, deficiencies were and I got to fix them up. And I really think that's why I used drugs and became addicted to drugs. Well, you know, you're touching upon something I was going to ask you later which is, you know, the thesis put forth by writer Alan Downs in his popular book, uh, The Velvet Rage, which is subtitled Overcoming the Pain of Growing Up Gay in a Straight Man's World. Many people embrace Alan's ideas, while others consider them a bit simplistic or pat for such a complex human feeling. How common do you find in your practice in dealing with people with addiction that these kind of issues of lack of validation, self, low self-esteem, homophobia, in fact, are perhaps the driving cause behind their tendency to become addicted. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say that there's a definite link, but I can say that most gay men I work with really, really love the Velvet Rage and identify with it. We play Alan Down's lectures and videos. The clients love them and, and end up talking about them for weeks afterwards, the impact it has on them and the awareness that it gives to them. And, you know, you think about it, especially the era that you grew up in and I grew up in, there was so much shame around homosexuality. And to add on to that, the AIDS crisis and, and what that did and the way the media ripped and tore up the LGBT community and made us look evil and bad and disgusting. So I think we absorb homophobia and shame and guilt from the media, from society, from our families, from religions like the LGBT community had it coming from everywhere. And, you know, as you're a young gay man coming onto the gay scene, 16, 17, 18, 19 years old, 
How can you not be affected by that? How can you not see what's on the television or the protests that people are doing on TV or the negativity in the movies and the films and the, and the commercials that came up over the years? How can we not absorb that? And if we're not strong enough, stop ourselves from internalising it. And I do believe a lot of LGBT people, whether consciously or unconsciously, use drugs as a result of trying to medicate low self-esteem and high levels of shame. So it becomes a refuge, a place to, to get rid of that bad feeling, to escape into a world that makes you feel better? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I, I mean, I've worked with clients in rehab, heterosexual and homosexual for 15 years. And these are the issues that people work on and sort out. And, and one of the big common factors for most rehabs is you're trying to help people build their self-esteem and learn how to decrease shame and increase self-esteem simultaneously. I do think it does play a really big part in how people feel about themselves. And I do think that if, if you're not brought up in a family that cherishes you, nurtures you, affirms you, sets respectful limits on you, and parents that give you time, attention and direction, when you finally find drugs, yeah, it's, it's, it seems like salvation. But, you know, obviously it turns into a hell eventually because it's not the answer. And of course... As gay men and women, we have the additional challenge of essentially learning how to date and deal with emotional attraction and rejection and all of that, usually in our 20s or 30s, depending on when we come out, whereas, you know, your normal heterosexual boy or girl does it at 13. Absolutely. And they're able to do it without being scrutinized or shamed or ridiculed or made fun of. Whereas any LGBT person that tried to do that in the 60s, 70s or 80s, that you just wouldn't. You wouldn't have. I definitely wouldn't have. I, I, I experienced enough negative feedback from my peers at school, just not even being openly gay at schools. You know, an alcoholic is always an alcoholic. Have you had the desire to try drugs again in subsequent years? I feel like I've detoxed it out of my system and I'm over it. I mean, I used to, to go to 12-step meetings all the time for a very long time and uh, I, I no longer go anymore. For the most part, I never even think about using drugs and it doesn't really appeal to me anymore. I, I think having gone to treatment and rehab and worked out the reasons why I use drugs, it's not really that important to me anymore. And I find, um, for the most part, really healthier ways of getting pleasure and happiness and joy into my life. So as you got clean and reemerged into the LGTB scene in the early 2000s, how did you stake out your career? What prompted you to consider becoming a counselor and therapist to others going through their own battles with addiction? That's a good question because I was a school teacher and um, prior to that I'd been a personal trainer for a, about seven, eight years. I wasn't really satisfied with the personal training and I wasn't really satisfied with the school teaching either and I felt like I was just sort of one of those people that never found the job they really wanted and and when I was in rehab I was I was given a gestalt therapist to work with and she was amazing she just she totally understood addicts she she was a recovering addict herself she showed me so much empathy and compassion and love and care and kindness in the sessions and I I cried and I wept and, you know, I was in a lot of pain and she was just incredible. And 
I guess because I was in rehab a long time, as you know, but halfway through my treatment, I just kind of suddenly thought people started giving me feedback. Oh, you give good support to your peers and you've got good advice. And I thought, I wonder whether I could do this. When I finished rehab, I, I waited about 18 months and then I thought, yeah, teaching isn't what I want to do. And so I applied to a school where I, I did a graduate diploma in counselling, majoring in group work, self-esteem and drug and alcohol issues. And that took four years. And and then I ran into a few other Gestalt therapists along the way. And, and they were all amazing. They were just incredible therapists. And so in the end, I went, I have to become a Gestalt therapist. And Fortunately, there was a school in Sydney at the time that uh, was uh, letting people study a master's. And so I ended up doing a four-year master's in Gestalt psychotherapy. And then uh, more recently, in the last four years, I became qualified as a sex addiction therapist. You know, sex addiction started to interest me as well. But I also um, do a lot of work with love addiction um, and codependence. You know, I'm a big, I do a lot of inner child work with my clients and I went to Arizona a couple of years in a row to study with Pia Melody. So it's been 14 or 15 years of um, study since I was in rehab. But what really began my journey was watching the therapist in rehab and wanting to be that person for others who didn't have hope or believe that they could get free of drug addiction. And discovering that you had an empathic nature as well as the experience of going going through that yourself to kind of provide you with the tools to, to basically apply that trade. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a very well-known phrase in um, therapy circles called being a wounded healer. So I would, I would say I'm a wounded healer. Um, and, you know, definitely, I mean, the great thing too is I was at the beginning of the crystal meth problem and the GHB problem. So I was one of the pioneers, I guess, of starting to work with clients who had crystal meth and, and GHB issues. And I think I had enormous empathy. I could understand drug-induced psychosis. I could understand what it meant to overdose on GHB and wake, you know, in hospital. I, had to, I just knew the landscape so well that when people would tell me these graphic, tragic stories, I was there with them because I'd been there. Uh, and as you and I spoke separately, Coincidentally, my mother was a Gestalt therapist, and for the benefit of the audience, maybe you should describe the Gestalt and how that differs from Freudian analysis, etc. Gestalt has three main pillars, the phenomenology and the dialogical, and the third aspect is experiment. So, and it's also very much about the here and now. It's not so much focused on, you know, what happened to you as a child or in the background, but we look at the phenomenology of the client there their body movements, their, what they're doing with their eyes, the, the repetition of certain phrases or words in the here and now. And uh, with the dialogical, that's about the relationship between me and the clients and noticing where we connect, where there's disconnect. And also it requires showing an incredible amount of empathy and attunement to what's happening with that client and being with them and being able to hold them in the here and now. And the experiment part is about chair work, putting people from that person's past into the chair so that they can have here and now conversations with them or having a, a talk to someone in, to a part of themselves that's in the chair as well, you know, their anger or their pain. It's a little bit like drama in a sense in that way, but it's it's just a very gentle and kind and loving but yet challenging and powerful form of therapy. 
Whereas, you know, like you said, psychoanalysis and that is a lot of going back into the past and trying to work out, you know, what did mum do to me? What did dad do to me? What did that sexual experience when I was 13? How did that impact on me? Which I think it has its place as well, of course. But I'm just trying to describe to you the difference with gestalt therapy. When you finish much of that training or enough at least to go out and set up your own practice, how did that happen? When I, even before I finished my graduate diploma in counseling, we had to go and do prac work. And I went and worked at a 12 step based rehab, a therapeutic community in Sydney. And before I finished my prac work, I was asked to interview for a job there and I got the job. So I started working there and started to build my confidence. As I progressed in my gestalt therapy, I was able to open my own private practice in Sydney. And I began, of course, working with gay men and especially men who had crystal meth and GHB problems. And it was an interesting time because most people remembered me as being this tall, muscular guy on the gay scene, and then this tall, muscular guy who had a terrible drug problem. And then I was this tall, muscular guy who was a psychotherapist working with drug addicts. And so everyone who had a crystal meth and GHB problem, I think, started coming to me because they were like, they'd seen me go through it come out the other side, get qualified. And so I guess they thought, well, he must know what he's doing. <laughs> so that's how I started. What's the word you use? Prat work? Prat, practical or practical. Uh-huh, gotcha. Okay. So your patients were a mix or they were mostly gay? And were they all yeah. addicted to drugs or do they have other addictions too? In the beginning, a lot of them were addicted to crystal meth and GHB. But no, I mean, I had some clients who just had mental health, depression, self-esteem issues. A lot of them still were issues that uh, were things that I'd gone through, like low self-esteem or depression. So I was definitely able to help them. But definitely the majority of them in the beginning was drug addiction. Why don't we help share with the audience kind of what age range you were in and what years this was taking place when you had your own practice? Mm, So, I mean, I went to rehab when I was 33 and I came out of rehab 34, 35, and I studied 35, 36, 37, and uh, sort of got qualified as a therapist by the age I was 37, 38. And then I started working in treatment centers. And, and 30, I mean, I, I was born in 1970, so it's pretty easy to follow the timeline. When I was 38, it was um, 2008. Yes. And so... Then I had my private practice starting 2008 right through until I came here to Thailand two years ago. So I was sort of in private practice in Australia for 10 years. Six years of that was in Sydney. I had a private practice there and then I moved to Melbourne and I had a private practice there for four years. So that was from the age of 43 to 47. And then I got off of this job in Thailand to manage R12, the LGBT rehab, when I was 47 and now I'm 49. So I've been here nearly two and a half years. So what led you to move from Sydney back to your hometown of Melbourne? And then how did you end up stepping into this job in Thailand? In Sydney, I did my recovery and it was a really great place for me to be. You know, during my addiction, I came to believe Sydney was an evil city, an evil crystal meth city. But when I got clean and did my sobriety there, I just realized that crystal meth was the harmful drug for me and Sydney was actually okay. So what led me to move from Sydney to Melbourne was I just got to a point where I really wanted to buy my own property And I also, my parents lived down in Melbourne and it was where I grew up. And so I just sort of, it was a bit of a homecoming. And, you know, I just thought I would be able to sort of build a more of a life. I built a house down 
outside of Melbourne in this small town where I grew up, overlooking these mountains. It was quite beautiful. I had a big garden, had everything I could never afford in Sydney. So when I still have that house today, I'm still paying it off. And I set up a private practice in Melbourne and, and started working there. And I mean, I guess that's what I had planned to do. And then just one night out of the blue, a friend of mine who I'd worked with years before rang me. He worked in at this rehab in Thailand and he said they're opening an LGBT facility. They want a manager there to run it, someone who knows about gay LGBT issues as well as crystal meth and drug addiction. And they said, you'd be perfect for it. So I applied, I got the job and really it happened very quickly. Like within about five weeks, I closed down my private practice in Melbourne, packed up my life, rented out my house and moved to Thailand. It was pretty exciting. And I mean, anyone who knows me knows that traveling is my number one favorite thing to do. And so coming to Thailand, really, a lot of it was about the fact that I would be closer to the rest of the world. I'd be able to travel to the US or to Europe or to the UK. If I wanted to travel around Asia, I could do that. And so far, that's turned out to be true. But I think the main thing about the main pull of coming to Thailand was this amazing opportunity to run an LGBT rehab and help members of the gay community heal from drug addiction, from mental health issues, from uh, internalized homophobia, the list goes on. Well, that prompts two questions. First, it must be awful tough to close down a practice with patients who are in the middle of the process of healing. And secondly, I'm just curious how your parents had come along and your relationship with them when you moved back to Melbourne after everything you'd been through. So I was very fortunate when I left Sydney to Melbourne because I was able to continue seeing my clients on Skype until they were able to transition to other therapists. Technology is amazing, as you know. And so I didn't abandon any of them, which was great. And then when I closed down my practice in Melbourne, I think I actually had about somewhere between 20 and 30 clients. It was tough, but I had a, a, a very a, a colleague there who worked in a very similar style to me and who had a great reputation. She was just starting a private practice in Melbourne and she was looking for clients. And I basically referred all of my clients to her. And it was a win-win for both of us. You know, I wasn't abandoning my clients and they were getting an equally great therapist to work with. And so I was very lucky. And, and it is a hard thing to do. I mean, I build strong beautiful relationships with clients and the three of them I think I'd worked with for nearly the entire time I'd been in Melbourne it was pretty sad to to leave them and behind so there was that and then with my parents the question you asked me about my parents was about my relationship with them yeah it's been a very long road with my parents because I do think that they've all struggled for a long time with my sexuality although I have to say I think they're they're in the best place they could ever be these days with that and I learned a lot when I was in rehab about boundaries and being assertive and communicating well and getting my needs met and a whole list of things and over the years I was able to be able to put all those things in place to look after myself and to build a bit better stronger relationship with my parents I mean I guess the sad thing for me is I don't really believe my parents ever did any looking at themselves or working on themselves, but I'm powerless over that. All I can do is look at myself and take care of myself. I mean, I spoke to my dad today. It's kind of ironic because his birthday is on World AIDS Day. And, you know, I had a lovely conversation with my mum and dad. And, you know, I would say I don't I don't blame them for anything at all. You know, they're a product of their their histories as much as I am. And so I 
I show them compassion and I love them and I enjoy the good moments with them and I set boundaries with them when I need to do that as well. So I would say our relationship is probably in the best place it's ever been. You've helped move them along the continuum of understanding a little bit about who you are and what you've gone through? Yeah, I mean, I've, I had to, you know, along the way, because when I was in my early recovery, a lot of magazines and radios wanted to do interviews with me because I was this crystal meth addict that had gotten sober. And, and that was, like I said, I was one of the pioneers of that. And my parents hated me doing these radio interviews and talking about being a drug addict. And I think it's because they felt that it reflected poorly on them. And that was very difficult because I was doing the radio interviews because I wanted to help other crystal meth addicts and other LGBT people. And I, I, I wasn't doing it to hurt my mum and dad, but they could only see it that way. And we had quite a few arguments about, I need to do this. It's important for me to do this, to help other people. And they didn't see it the same way I did. So we kind of butted heads in a few areas. But the great thing that rehab and rehabilitation taught me was that I need to stand my ground and get my needs met and be assertive where I need to. So I was able to use all that in, in building a better, stronger relationship with them. And yes, you're right. They have, I believe, come to understand more strongly who I am. Well, inescapably, even though you weren't blaming them, you had to touch upon their inability to to praise you, to recognize your accomplishments, which contributed to that feeling of deficiency. So I can understand to some extent you being honest and forthright about your upbringing touched upon how the areas in which maybe they they weren't up to snuff. Yeah. Now, so now you made it to Thailand and you're managing this LGBTQ exclusive facility within a larger treatment operation. What's that like? What are the pluses and minuses of the challenges? You told me about how you sometimes have to be the bad cop. Tell us what, what's involved in that. You do have to have strong boundaries with clients and be assertive with them and set the rules. And LGBT clients are very intelligent and a lot of the clients we get have PhDs and their and their CEOs and, and things like that. So they're not used to be being told no or that you can't use your technology or basically that really and, and having boundaries put in place for them. So my job is to make sure the guidelines are abided by and the rules are abided by so that we can keep the community safe. They don't always like that. And so they get angry and frustrated with me and talk about that. And I find that really hard to do. I mean, I would much rather have a less stressful job. Most rehabs I've worked in, I haven't had to be the bad cop. I just have to be the therapist and the counselor. And I leave that up to the manager. But now I am the manager. I have to do that work. And I do find it quite draining and difficult. These clients often don't understand why those rules and guidelines are in place. But the therapeutic community model is a specific model and there's books written on it that define and, and describe why rules and boundaries and guidelines are important. So I've done my time working in these places and I've read the books and I know really what needs to be done for people to get the most out of their rehabilitation experience. What's the difference between a private practice and a facility like that? In many ways, I would much rather work in a facility because you have that person hostage for 28 days or for eight weeks. When I say hostage, they can't go off and use drugs in between the sessions. You know, in a, in a private practice, you see them for one hour once a week. They could go out and go on a four-day crystal meth binge and come back and their, their head's still spinning and they're not taking in any of the therapy you're doing. Or they could even show up to a session high. 
when you're in treatment far away from Australia, they're coming to see me for therapy, then they're going to a holistic session, then they're going to a psychoeducation session, and then they're in a process group, and then they're getting a massage. The therapy is 24-7, and it goes on for four weeks or eight weeks. And so I believe that a person gets the most out of therapy when they're in a residential setting. So I personally prefer working in residential settings because I think we see overall better outcomes. So an immersive experience is more likely to be successful. I I believe so, yeah. You mentioned to me also offline that addiction counselors typically have careers that span, you know, 10 to 12 years, partly because of burnout. You've now been doing it that long. Do you feel you may be reaching that point too? Yeah, I do actually, sadly, because I was very passionate about this work for the first really eight to 10 years. And what I noticed with the colleagues of mine that work in the treatment facility is they have that passion and that drive and that motivation, which I love. And I'm so glad that they have that. And I remember having it myself. I think I I would like to move on to something else soon. And I don't know what that will be. I mean, I'm hoping that our company opens an office in London and I'm able to work there in an outpatient way with clients one-to-one and run some groups on chemsex and sex addiction and just maybe slow it down a little bit. I mean, I would definitely miss the residential element and having the, the held hostage kind of part of it, but I do think it would be quite a lot less stressful to kind of move into that area. I'd also love to write a book about my life if I could ever get disciplined enough to do it. Well, if you reach that, maybe I'll introduce you to my partner, Tom Walker, who's an amazing editor and curator, but that's another story. Well, you know, you've had a fascinating life and so grateful to you for sharing it with me and our audience. And I'm also grateful for the internet reconnecting us. So thanks again for your time, Stu. My pleasure. Great talking to you. This episode of Bammer and Me has been produced by Mike Balaban, Tom Walker, and Caleb Holland. For more stories, go to bammer.co.